We are heading for the general elections of 2024 and before we get into the real campaign situation, before action begins, we will also dedicate some episodes of Kartakta to, to look at some of the key questions, key enduring questions in Indian politics. So today, for example, what is the Muslim vote? Is there such a thing as Muslim vote? Is there such a thing as a Muslim vote bank? Does somebody have ownership of this vote bank? Somebody has the keys to it? Or does somebody not have access to this vote bank? Meaning thereby are forces arrayed against the BJP? Do they own this vote bank? And does BJP have no access to it? Or, or there, is some, there is some nuance there. Again, is the BJP happy to be in this situation that they will, they will play in a field of 85% votes in India and leave out the 15% of Muslim voters? Or are they doing something about it? Now, I will talk about a bit of it myself. But also, I have with me a colleague of mine, Sanya Dhingra, who you know well. Uh, she's worked with us in two spells. One, as a reporter the first time, then she went to university overseas, to Columbia University to study political science. She's come back and now she's looking at deeper issues, particularly to do with both RSS, BJP politics in terms of going back to their ideological texts. And we will talk about some of that on some other occasion with her, but also about how the minority, the Muslim minority is thinking. And she's done two very important stories, two very important, very detailed and very extensive stories, the kind of stories you do not read in Indian journalism these days. One is about the rise and not quite fa fall, but generally the waxing and waning and waxing and waning of the power of the ulema, of the clergy when it comes to Muslim politics. And second also about the Shia vote or about the Shia mind in India. Remember, 15% of India is Muslim and among the Muslims, 15% are Shia. So this is 15% of 15%. There's also been an impression that the Shias of India or Shias anywhere do not vote the same way as the, as the Sunni majorities do. Because barring a few countries, Shias tend to be a minority among the among the Muslims. So those two really nuanced, complex stories Sanya has handled. We'll share the links with you with the description. So please read those. Read those carefully because there's a lot of wisdom in those. And she will, I will lean on her to talk about many of these issues and really bail me out of this because this is a complex issue. Remember, for a long time, Indian Muslims, and this is something that I've written about in National Interest, more than once. The, the very fascinating thing about Muslim politics in India is that since India became independent, Indian Muslims have never trusted a Muslim as their leader. They've always chosen a Hindu as their leader or Hindus as their or some Hindus as their leader. So for a long time, it might have been Mahatma Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, Indira Gandhi, the Congress party in general, the Gandhi family, the Congress party. Then Mulayam Singh Yadav, Akhilesh Yadav, Lalu Prasad Yadav in, in Bihar. Similarly, the left in West Bengal, the Congress party in Kerala, so on and so forth. Only lately in some parts of India, a couple of Muslim leaders have risen. And 
one would have thought and there was some impression that at least one of them will grow a national footprint or will be accepted as a leader by Muslims across the country and that was Asaduddin Ovesi who came from Hyderabad, Hyderabad city, that's his gut, that's his pocket borough and he won the odd seat in Maharashtra and people said, oh, now Indian Muslims have the rise of a Muslim leader. But that did not grow from there. He won a few seats in Bihar in the assembly election. Most of those fellows defected, left his party and went back to the preeminent Muslim patronizing or preeminent party patronized by the Muslims there. So these are, these are the complexities we are looking at in this situation. The BJP first. And I turn to Sanya now. Sanya, is the BJP even bothered? What sense are you getting? You've traveled, you've met a lot of people, a lot of people in the Muslim community, but you also track BJP, RSS, uh, and you read what they are publishing. Is the BJP completely resigned to not batting in that 15% or they want to do that? They certainly, most certainly want to do that. Um, and there are broadly, I think, three reasons that they're doing it. One is, of course, electorally, they would want to expand uh, their sort of vote share. That's why we're seeing a shift from their sort of minority politics from Shias to Pasmandas, because Shias, as you mentioned, are just 15% of the 15% Muslim population, whereas Pasmandas are 85% of the Muslim population. So from Shias, they're now they're increasingly talking about Pasmandas. So there is, of course, an electoral angle. Uh, they also internationally uh, on the front of sort of uh, foreign affairs they do not they want to show that muslims in india are doing well they don't want to put up that sort of an ugly face and thirdly there's an ideological reason as well which sort of for which we need to turn to the rss um ideologically they believe that pasmandas for example are all people lower caste muslims who were erstwhile lower caste Hindus who converted to Islam because of untouchability, because of the violence that they uh, sort of faced within Hinduism and that's why they turned to Islam. So they in that sense want to bring them back at least culturally assimilate uh, this section of the Muslim population. I think from the Prime Minister himself the messages are very clear about the minority outreach. So uh, at which point I shall tell you something, Ramvila's Paswan uh, he changed parties all the time. He was called by the cock and all that, quite rightly so. In 1997, when, 1996 in fact, in the debate on the 13-day Vajpayee government, when he defended the secular idea, he made a very good point. I consider that to be among the most important speeches made in Indian parliament. In fact, on which note I must also tell you that we are now running a series called Hashtag Great speeches. So go to hashtag great speeches and you will find the many we have we have already published and we'll continue publishing these because these were speeches that defined modern India. So this I consider this as among one of those speeches and he said he raised a very important point there about making the case for Indian secularism and why there were so many Muslims in India. He said the truth is that with Babar only 40 Muslims came. Maybe it was more than 40, but he put it like that. He said, Babar ke saath to sirf 40 musliman aay the. Then how did so many, from where did all these crores of Muslims come? And he said, Aapne hume mandir nahi jane diya. To unhone masjid mein bulaya. Masjid chale gaye. You were not letting us come to your temples. We needed to find God someplace. They said, come to our mosques. 
so we went to their mosque so that's the point that sanya has made right now that pasmanda muslims or, or the majority of muslims were called pasmanda the rss believes that they were hindus and they only became they only embraced islam because of untouchability in hinduism and because of discrimination which is why if you go back to mohan bhagwat statement he said that at, at i think a couple of years ago he said hindus and muslims have the same dna so this right. is what he was referring to right we keep hearing about ashraf muslims or pasmanda muslims sanya you can tell us what is the breakup and i believe as i read from your story there are actually three categories not yeah. two so broadly ashrafs are the uh, dominant upper caste muslims and they constitute just about 15% of uh, the sort of muslim population and all others are ajlafs and arzals now ajlafs would be uh, an equivalent of the backwards and arzals would be the dalits pasmandas is a category uh, which refers to both ajlafs and arzals so anybody who's not like a brahmin like figure an ashraf is pasmanda by uh, and the muslim elites so far in india have mostly been most, from the ashraf community including in the ulama including if you go to amu most of the faculty everybody is it's full brahminwad within uh, muslims as well yeah, if, if you can put it like that hmm. so uh, bjp is reaching out to the pasmanda community and shia community yes Shia community, of course, the BJP has traditionally you go back even three decades, four decades. Shias have, uh, as you know, for the piece when I was talking to Hilal Ahmed, he says Shias were the Hilal Ahmed is a scholar who also often writes for the print. uh and who has worked a lot on sort of muslim politics and he says shias were the original sort of good muslims for the bjp good muslims uh yeah. and now it is the pasmandas so shias of course they have shared a relationship a uh, good sort of the, at least the shia religious leadership has had good ties with bjp leaders for several decades and this includes the likes of atal bihari vajpayee lalji tandon basically mostly in lucknow uh this politics because shias remember are mostly in lucknow that is considered the nerve center of shia politics in india because the, the 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 home of shia political and religious power in a way is lucknow lucknow yeah. also has the big imambada yeah. and the rulers of lucknow until 1857 that is nawab wajid ali shah until his times that ruling dynasty in lucknow was a shia dynasty yes it was a shia dynasty which took the sunnis forward with them but the shia minority shia dynasty ruled lucknow for more than a 100 years so ruled awadh for more than a 100 years so that is that is the power of the shia in lucknow yeah. and you talk a little bit more explain this yeah. how this works and i will tell tell you all a story so yes uh, lucknow had awadh had shia rulers for as you mentioned more than a century uh, that time shias and sunnis although shia rulers were a minority ruling over a majority sunni community they had deep fraternal ties uh, but um, and as as i think wajid ali shah used to say one of my two eyes is one is shia and the other is sunni so there was sort of there were sort of close relations this begins to change with the advent of the uh, sort of uh, british rule especially after 1857 uh, when the shia nawabs are ousted out of awadh and that kind of changes the 
political dynamic of the the the, the place and uh, especially because sunnis now become a little more well to do than they earlier were shias uh, their income stagnate or in fact decline and at the same time you see the growth of uh, islamic revivalist sects like the deobandis and the barelvis yes. and they sort of begin to theologically codify islam and also start sort of attacking a lot of shia rituals so and this, shia theology as well shia theology as well and um, that that is the time we see the tension sort of become very grave between shias and sunnis and then of course in the 20th century uh, a, throughout lucknow is actually one of the cities in india which has the um, the strange reputation of having a history of communal rights which are not between hindus and muslims but between sunnis and shias 20th century lucknow had a series of deadly riots and Gopal also had some of that hmm. and the, the story about that is from from the film ishkia that's <laughs> where arshad varsi the two crooks two hoods you remember arshad varsi and his mamu nasiruddin shah they go to gorakhpur and then they find the the gangs there and he says mamu yahan se bhag chalo kyunki mare bhopal mein to sirf do sena hoti thi shia aur sunni ki yahan to brahmin ki thakur ki yadav ki sabki apni sena hai so so india had a history of shia sunni riots i also remember from my childhood in old delhi that muharram time when the processions came out right police would be out and the general talk would be now they might be shia sunni riots fortunately in most of india those things do not happen anymore for several decades now so yes for hmm. about a 100 years that was the trend yeah and um, in fact in 1930s when there was civil, a civil disobedience movement that mahatma gandhi was leading there was a small civil disobedience movement that was breeding in lucknow itself and that was over uh sunnis leading a campaign to recite something called the madhe sahiba which is a recitation that sahiba is usually uh, is is a way to address an honorific honorific for the holy prophet yeah so this recitation though commemorates all four khalifas of islam which include abu bakr umar usman and ali as opposed to shias who only believe that ali was the only real successor of the prophet so they started running this campaign that after all friday prayer prayers we will collect and recite uh, madhe sahiba and this sort of enraged the shias and um, there were riots in lucknow uh, the government thought that we should ban the madhe sahiba uh, which in turn enraged the sunnis and and remember this is a time when sunnis are becoming more organized theologically and also uh, the congress is increasingly realizing that they are more uh, dominant numerically so uh, the sunni leadership uh, mm-hmm. decides to uh, advocate civil disobedience so the congress crumbles under pressure and this is the time when we see that sh- the shia uh, shias and the shia leadership in particular finds itself absolutely friendless and the erstwhile rulers ironically are have nowhere to go to they start in fact demanding separate electorates from the sunnis so the sort of and uh, and that is something that sardar patel actually supported <laughs> maybe it was tactical but he supported that because sardar patel uh, leaned towards the shia yeah. and, and he also might have suggest agreed with the idea of separate electorates for the shia so he was humoring their demand and uh, this is not me saying it mushirul hasan has uh, sort book, of yeah. uh, in uh, an essay professor that professor mushirul hasan former vice chancellor late mushirul hasan 
Vice Chancellor of Jamia Millia and also a very well acknowledged scholar and professor. So yeah, he writes that Patel uh, was humoring the Shia demands, even though he knew he cannot actually uh, enter, fulfill, them. Uh, fulfill them in any real way, neither him nor his party. But there you, but Patel was aware, according to um, Hassan, that uh, if he listens to the Shias, this will sort of puncture the Muslim League's uh, narrative of you know Muslims being one unified. Because community. Congress at this point was up against Muslim League and its two-nation theory. Exactly. So Congress. One thought that they will make alliances among the Muslims and the route to that was the ulema, the, the ulema. Deobandis and yes. others. Because remember the other sort of uh, elite Muslims, especially the AMU Muslims, the Aligarh Muslim University uh, Muslims, were by and large... Uh, had aligned themselves with the Muslim League and were in favor of the two-nation theory. So the Congress needed other sort of elite Muslims. And, and, and that's why the Mulanas to... and Mulana Azad, for example, represented yes. that stream. So Mulanas, Ulema came with the Congress. And we'll, we'll come back to the Ulema issue. I will only tell you something about the Shia power. So after the destruction of Babri Masjid in 1992, when mood was really bad in India and Muslims were really angry and aggrieved as they should have been. Narsimha Rao, among the things he did to calm them or, or calm the mood, he, he invited Rafsanjani to come to India, Iran's leader, and persuaded him to go to Lucknow and address a congregation of the Shia at Lucknow's Imam Bada. Mm -hmm. And you know how big the Imam Bada is. It was a full congregation and that's where Rafsanjani said that India's Muslims should feel safe under the Indian system of secularism. Now, that was an appeal to Indian Shia. So, this game of dividing the Shia and Sunni yeah. and addressing each one as a different constituency has been played by both the BJP hmm. and the Congress party. Hmm. 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 And the Congress, obviously, Sunnis being numerically more dominant, uh, their natural allies were uh, sort of the Sunnis, and which is what the BJP is now seeking to do as well, because they are also trying to enlarge. So, what is the BJP doing with the Sunnis right now? I mean, there there's so many things, but Pasmanda outreach is one of them. Uh, if you see uh, the Sufi outreach is also part of the Sunni outreach. We know that uh, the Prime Minister has talked a lot about uh, sort of organizing Sufi sammelans, wherein leaders of dargahs, various dargahs across the country, uh, they're meeting uh, with PJP leaders, uh, delegations are uh, meeting, they're doing Sufi nights and uh, there are a lot of stories uh, about this. And recently, in fact, uh, the Prime Minister presented a chadar into the to a delegation uh, uh, in the Ajmer Dargah. Ajmer Dargah. So, so, and uh, Sun and uh, Sufis are basically they belong to the Barelvi sect of Sunnis, and the difference being that the Deobandi sect believes ki on, we can only pray to Allah. While the Barelvis and the Sufis believe that we can also pray to, uh, so there can be intermediaries between the Allah. The peers and, like Hazrat Nuzamuddin, exactly. Hazrat so, yeah. Moinuddin Chishti, and it, so on. Yes, so this yes. is the big divide within Sunnis between Barelvis and Deobandis. Or, or in Pakistan, uh, Pakpatan, Ganshakar, there are lots of these Sufi saints who, who this stream prays to. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
so i mean there's the here you also see a, uh, a focus on bjp's welfare politics so when they're talking to a lot of pasmandas who happen to be economically very backward their thrust is on welfare schemes they they are not talking about the ram mandir and so so on that that politics is completely absent in their outreach to poor muslims they're only talking about welfare schemes and, and the sabka saath sabka vikas slogan is kind of very dominant and in there. lucknow and up in general uh people like vajpayee even rajnath singh they are not unpopular among the muslims particularly the no. shias no not at all not at all in fact while traveling to uh, in lucknow i came across this businessman who was a shia leader and he is kind of leading the campaign for rajnath singh and he's doing this through we'll show uh, you his pictures as we talk yes yeah and he's and he's very different from the religious leadership that the bjp has uh, cultivated among shias uh, so far and it's it's not just lucknow in fact if you see uh, gujarat uh, Modi, when he was chief minister, he cultivated very close ties with Dawoodi Bohras, who were again a sect within the Shia community, and. Uh even at the time when a lot of uh, Muslims were disillusioned, it was the Dawoodi Bohras who kind of stood by Modi. Dawoodi Bohras, in fact, are a very uh, outgoing and very enterprising community, and I have a little personal story to tell you. Uh, time I was taken to meet. the sayedna the head of the sect he gave me a little box for a gift and i thought must be a perfume or something so i took it i came home and i opened it and it had a watch what watch was it this watch was it and that's the watch i have worn now for more than 12 years it's an omega i checked how much it cost it wasn't a very expensive watch it was one of the cheaper omega watches and i checked out the price and to be to be completely truthful I made an equivalent donation to one of his charities as well. It is a good watch, and at that point, I didn't have one, so I did need a watch. Uh, even Kalbe Jawad in 2014, when Kalbe Jawad being the Shia, the most prominent Shia cleric in India, he's like the Pope for Shias. I write in the story. Uh, he wrote in 2014 that we are scared of Modi, but we are not scared of Rajnath Singh. He has the acceptability of Vajpayee for us. And remember, uh, Vajpayee. It was during Kalyan Singh's time that. there was a 21 year old ban on muharram processions in lucknow uh, muharram being very uh, sort of uh, very important for shias and it was the kalyan singh government that had lifted this ban uh, so since that time shias uh, have felt that at least the shia leadership has felt so that kalyan they have had... singh lifted the ban and yet kept the peace yes yet kept the peace and so since then we see that the shia leadership has been close to but a, some a few of it leaders. again became an issue of tension uh, during the pandemic during the pandemic and i think most uh, religious leaders shia leaders were okay with the fact that the muharram processions were being uh, prohibited suspended, yes. suspended for a few years because of the pandemic but there was a circular for example that the up dgp uh, sort of sent out at that time which said that uh, during the processions you may have cases of sexual assault you may have cases of cow slaughter so we must not have these processions and this enraged the community at large uh, um and that is the problem in this whole uh, idea that the shia 
community as a whole votes for the BJP. That is not entirely true. It's just that the Shia religious leadership, some of them have cultivated close relationships with some leaders in the BJP. But the Shia community, by and large, it, we cannot conclude that it sort of supports the BJP in that yeah. fashion. And there was also the tension over a line that Yogi, Yogi Adityanath Adityan. used in his campaign. Which was um, that if unke paas uh, Ali, then we have Bajrang Bali. Hai, and Ali being sort of very, uh, very important for the Shia. That was seen as an attack on Shias. Um, so among Shias, there is a sense that Yogi is no Vajpayee and Yogi is no Rajnath Singh. So there is a there is that tension. And as you well, write in your new... story that Shias leadership actually reached out to Rajnath Singh to see if he could pers persuade Yogi. Yogi Adityanath to withdraw that line. Yes, and uh, but by and large, the problem, the what Shias, uh, a lot of Shias uh, are feeling is that. Uh, the Shia religious leadership, the clergy has been obsequious to the BJP. Uh, they're not really getting a, and the and they feel that in the politics of hate, uh, people do not differentiate between Shias and Sunnis and Shias have to suffer as much as Sunnis do. So they are beginning to ask this question that all right, you have aligned yourself with the BJP, but what are they doing for the community really? So mm. those questions and there is a looming crisis of credibility also, the clergy. You, you know, the, among Muslims, there is a very clear sense of what is the sacred space and what is the or dharm ke, these are two separate domains mm. and they do not like if the the, the clergy Siyasati so, or Mazhabi Siyasati or Mazhabi and they do not like the clergy sort of giving these kind of aligning themselves so openly uh, politically and with the Kalbe Jawad family for example you see uh, a, a few of his members are his in uncle, the uncle his father they were all dadas of the community uh, which in those days in early days Congress leaned on and then yes. Samajwadi party yes and and Kalbe Jawad now sort of gives open appeals uh, to his community to vote for the BJP and that is not quite liked by the community yeah. So, but the BJP has some outreach in that area. Yes, yes. Now, the other thing that we thought we'll talk about today, uh, before we let you go, is just the power of the clergy. Because the idea of the Muslim vote bank and the rule of the fatwa, the idea of the Muslim vote bank actually resides in the rule of, or the notion of the rule of the fatwa. That some ulema gave a call on the eve of every election and the usual suspect was Shahi Imam of Jama Masjid. Right now, he was Shahi Imam in Shah Jahan's times. Yeah, and that's why Shahi because that, the Imam of the empire. Yes, Shahi Imam because he was so he he was so proclaimed in Shah Jahan's times. He was called Imamul Sultan, Sultan ka Imam, which means Shahi Imam, and he had been regularly issuing fatwas which made headlines, and an impression grew, and that also enabled the BJP to talk of appeasement politics that. Congress party cultivates Shahi Imam or ulema like that who then issue fatwas for Muslims to vote for the Congress party. Now, where is, where is the power of the ulema? Who are the ulema? Will they count for much in this coming election, Sanya? So, this idea, you know, again, to quote Hilal Ahmed, he says one of the most enduring myths about minority politics and Muslim politics in India is that the ulema, which is the religious leadership of the community, gives a political fatwa and the entire community follows them and votes in 
accordance with the fatwa uh that has it's not backed by data any kind of electoral data that uh, but it's it's not even refuted by any kind of data so we have no data to prove it this way or that uh but what we do know is that the kind of respect and credibility that the ulama enjoyed in the 60s and the 70s it is far from that now in fact um when i was talking to a congress leader a muslim congress leader in lucknow he said that of course maulana's run whisper campaigns for different political parties but now the the credibility crisis is so intense that if maulana gives um, sort of uh, asks most uh, people to vote for uh, a certain candidate they are suspicious of some under the table deal that the maulana so, is made a deal so, so the maulana has made a deal so there is a massive credibility crisis uh, of of the clergy itself so uh, we we don't quite we, we don't quite know new gen muslims are educated and modern as much as members of other communities exactly so they, so, so, so they ask questions now if you look at the fatwas shahi imam uh, our delhi ka shahi imam he is given fatwas for different parties yeah he was giving fatwas for congress party earlier 1989 he gave a fatwa for vp singh's party janta dal so much so uh, that vp singh really cultivated him and 2004 2004 he gave a fatwa for the bjp uh, yeah. i if the masses of muslims had voted for the bjp i don't know and shahi imam's uh, stature has particularly de- uh, declined if you talk to any sort of muslim clergy across um, different parts of the country they say that it is that wo jama masjid ke aas paas bhi vote nahi la payenge unke bolne ka koi fayda nahi hoga actually just to tell you a little story he had once thrown me out of uh, out of jama masjid compound i was i had set up a waqta talk with mira nair the filmmaker and she said let's go to the jama masjid compound and we had gone there and he came down and he looked at me and he said aap jo karna chahe kar le lekin inko hum yahan nahi karne denge ye bilkul galat hai ye nachne gaane waliyon ko hum yahan nahi aane denge i pleaded with him i reasoned with him i tried to tell her what a reputed filmmaker she was but he wasn't going to listen to me so we walked out we recorded outside jama masjid and then we also sat down for a meal of nihari at one of the shops there and did part of the interview while having that wonderful meal as well so he he is ra- increasingly now the a kind of a entrepreneur in chief of that area i don't i also don't believe that he now commands any vote particularly but is that true of most of the ulama in india now i think so because if you look at some of the crucial moments of muslim uh, politics or muslim protest in the last few years you see the clergy has been entirely absent and i'm talking about starting from 2017 uh, when muslim women were sort of spearheading a legal uh, uh, battle against triple talaq the clergy was nowhere to be found uh, anti ca uh, protests in 2019 again uh, led by women mostly from uh, shaheen bagh in delhi uh, also or from, students or from, or from activists of the left yes and also students from uh, yeah. jamia and amu the clergy JNU. was missing the clergy was entirely missing again and uh, at the time of the uh, temple consecration in uh, in january we did not hear any voices from the clergy so by and large the clergy seems to have gone silent in fact the only member of the muslim clergy the only ulama member of the ulama we heard about during the temple consecration was was the one who attended the 
कॉन्सिक्रेशन दैट इज मौलाना और मौलवी उमेर इलियासी एंड वी हैव अ स्टोरी अबाउट दैट सानिया प्लीज टेल अस द स्टोरी सो उमेर इलियासी ऑब्वियसली मौलाना उमेर इलियासी ही हिट द हेडलाइंस फॉर गोइंग टू द राम टेंपल एंड देन ही हैड अ फतवा इशूड अगेंस्ट हिम फॉर डूइंग सो but what we don't know he and he is the head of the all india imam organization uh, its office is right in the heart of delhi in copernicus mark what we didn't know is that his father jamil ilyasi was very very close to indira gandhi in fact there's a there's a legend which is corroborated in uh, in uh, rashid kidwai senior journalist rashid kidwai's book as well that at the time of the 1980 general election indira gandhi was very extremely nervous uh, about whether she's going to win or not and at that time she was meeting all kinds of holy men and one of those holy men who she met was jamil ilyasi and molana um, molana jamil ilyasi and he said that i uh, you will have to let me tie something in the some kind of charm in some the some kind of an uh, an amulet or maybe a holy thread or something somewhere on the ceiling on of on the her ceiling bedroom. of her bedroom which uh, she did and then she won with 353 seats landslide victory uh, but there was a caveat uh, molana ilyasi had told indira gandhi but as soon as you win you have to call me back indira gandhi forgot to do that um and uh, later sanjay gandhi died she was absolutely not long after not long after and she was absolutely depressed distraught the molana was called back uh, molana equally distraught said why did you not call me back i told you to call me back after you win the election now you have to offer namaz to correct what you have what you did not do uh, and she indira gandhi was so shaken that she obliged so this she, is in uh, rashid kidwai's book this is in rashid kidwai's book and this jamil ilyasi uh, molana jamil ilyasi was uh, molana umair ilyasi's father who is very close to now the and, bjp and, 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 and the rss jamil ilyasi then removed that that child, remo- that, that was it well now we don't want to promote any superstition <laughs> anywhere this is not the movies like this is not a bollywood movie so just to get the perspective right mrs gandhi may have made up with the molana after her son's unfortunate death but it's also true that whatever peace she made with the molana and whatever other charm he might have offered her that did not protect her from getting assassinated just 4 years later so once again we don't promote any superstition whatsoever it is just a very fascinating political story isn't it it just for me what this uh, anecdote does is it tells you that uh, the relationship between the muslim clergy and mainstream politicians is not straightforward we cannot understand it through a political fatwa here or there it's far more complicated and right now you see is rapid decline in the power of the clergy we can we can definitely say that as we talked about their absolute absence in some pivotal moments of muslim politics in the last few years so these are wonderful insights sanir thank you very much and uh, as we go along because there'll be so much politics over the next few months i think you can count on me for dragging you once again and talking about some of these issues because you are now looking at some of the most in-depth issues that drive today's politics that is the ideological impulse of the bjp and rss on the one side and second the mind of our largest minority on the other